Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2SER nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Veronica Elishina and coming up on the program... We, we used to talk about economic rationalism in Australia, a term that's again become obsolete, but that was a way of really making it very difficult to oppose. Why would you be opposed to something so rational as economic rationalism? On the Money introduces a brand new segment, bringing you the latest and greatest in finance, business and economics literature, podcasts and other media. Also on the show... Even if you work in the university sector and your university doesn't subscribe to a journal, you won't be able, for example, to do cross-disciplinary research. Governments and universities spend millions of dollars on journals for peer-reviewed research. But is this business model sustainable? We look at Plan S. All this and more coming up on On The Money. First, IWF has been in the press recently for all the wrong reasons, after APRA's action wiped over $900 million off the share market and their managing director and chairman later facing court over claims of mismanagement. In this case, the announcement couldn't have come at a worse time as the superannuation company is planning to purchase ANZ's superannuation business, OnePath Super, later this year. This makes IWOF the largest Australian financial service company by funds under management. The two directors have since been removed and the new CEO, Alan Griffith, has asked for the public to trust them once more. All indications are that the deal will still go ahead, but should it? Daniel Ellison has more. One of the most dramatic moments of the Hain Royal Commission was on December 7, 2018, when APRA announced it would be taking action against IWOF after an almost two-year investigation by the regulators. It was found that the financial advice and superannuation giant had failed to put appropriate structures in place to ensure the integrity of a company with over 500,000 customers. This notice resulted in the removal of both the managing director, Chris Kelleher, and chairman, George Venados, and its immediate effect was to wipe over $900 million of value off IWOF on the share market. Both men are due to stand trial later this year, while APRA continues talks with IWOF to ensure they attain the proper licensing that will allow them to manage the over $10 billion they currently manage. IWOF is currently preparing its defense, but there is something else looming in the near future for the group once known as the International Order of Oddfellows their planned acquisition of ANZ's one-path superannuation business, which was due to occur at the beginning of March, but has now been delayed until later in the year. In January 2019, ANZ announced that they'd be putting the deal on hold so they could get more advice from both APRA and IWOF. But neither they nor the superannuation trustees have made any comment regarding this deal since APRA's action. And Jerry Prawada, professor of finance at UNSW and former ANZ executive, says there's a very good reason for this. Once people have made a public announcement that they have a deal and it's going forward, um, there's something of a mental trap that takes 
called that says, look, it's quite embarrassing to reverse that decision. I would expect that um, kind of psychological pressure to be in existence right now. Um, I think that if the deal were to be unwound um, at the behest of ANZ, uh, that would not look good. And no matter what the board of ANZ might think to themselves privately about the behaviour of IOOF and its executive, this transaction is in fact out of their hands. I asked Jerry Pawada who in fact was making this decision. The trustees, the superannuation trustees, it's in the hands squarely of the superannuation trustees. They are the ones that have to apply this test of whether the deal, um, insofar as superannuation assets, the product side of the business, is concerned. Uh, whether the deal is in the best interest of uh, the superannuation members. That is the critical test. Scott Donald, Deputy Director for the Centre for Law, Markets and Regulation at UNSW, says that this is one of the principal tenets of superannuation in Australia and something that makes superannuation companies a little bit different from others in the financial sector. Well, the case studies in the Royal Commission um, often dealt with the position of trustees sitting within larger groups. And what came across across very strongly is that those trustees really must um, have regard to the needs of members and act quite independently of what might be going on elsewhere in the group. And I think the regulators are going to really kind of push that quite hard. Um, It's very important if superannuation is to deliver on its promise that, um, that members' needs are put first. We can see that in the, um, the legislative initiatives that are on hand at the moment around member outcomes, and we can see it in the sorts of things that the senior people at both ASIC and APRA are saying in the public at the moment. They're very clearly signalling to trustees that they have to really pursue the best interests of members um, in their funds as, as far as they can. APRA, which stands for the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, has accused two of IOOF's executive of not being fit and proper persons and acting against the interests of its members. It is therefore an interesting landscape which finds APRA once again assessing the potential funds transfer of one path to IOOF, as this deal will make IOOF Australia's largest financial advisor by funds under advice. Scott Donald appreciates the delicate position APRA currently finds itself in. Well, it's not really APRA's role to give its blessing or not to... The deal, or whatever deal is ultimately done, um, they will obviously make an assessment um, around whether the new trustee or the trustee that assumes these new responsibilities um, has all of the procedures and structures and resources in place to actually do their job properly, just as they would with any other super fund. Equally, they will be concerned to ensure that the current trustee continues to act in the interest of members by taking, you know, by administering the fund efficiently and so on. And so they, they will have a continuing ongoing interest in how this all develops that will go in, I guess, in one direction if, if there is a successful fund transfer and will go in another direction if there isn't. But it's not really for them to give a green light or a red light. When the deal to sell one path to IOOF was announced in October 2017, it was also announced that ANZ would be offloading its One Path life insurance business to Swiss giant Zurich. In the wake of APRA's action against Chris Kelleher and George Venados, in fact on the very same day, 
it was announced that the Zurich deal was separated from the IWF deal and could therefore go ahead. You know, in the current environment, if ANZ has made a clear pronouncement that um, the Zurich, Zurich trans- transaction does not involve IWF, as it has done, um, I would be inclined to think that there is um, a, a, a significant amount of truth in that. There was some good news for IWF today, with an announcement that they would also be purchasing the, the financial advice business from Bendigo Bank. Jerry Pawada recognises the intent IWF is showing and the positive signals it is now sending to APRA, ANZ, the One Path trustees and its own members. Um, of course, the, the, it's not a huge number um, in terms of value that we're looking at. But in the scheme of things, if IWF was in such trouble in, its, uh, in this line of business, uh, well, I think it is doing enough to show that they are intent on a, a, a developing critical mass, investing in this uh, advice space, and that uh, signal of seriousness might well be picked up by the trustees as well. Jerry Pawada, Professor of Finance at UNSW and AGSM Fellow, ending that report by Daniel Ellison. Tune in to hear the latest and greatest in the world of finance, business and the economy with On The Money's Hot Off The Press. Welcome to our brand new Hot Off The Press segment. Here is where we read, watch, listen, interview and review the latest and greatest in the world of business, finance and the economy. This is our Hot of the Press debut, and it's a very special one because joining me in the studio is Dominic Kelly, author of Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics. Dominic is a research fellow at La Trobe University and has written for many prominent Australian publications. Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics is his first book and takes its eye-catching title from a statement made by former Prime Minister Bob Hawke in 1986. That was the year uh, a group formed called the H.R. Nichols Society. Uh, which was devoted to transforming Australia's industrial relations system. So that and another three organisations is what I, are what I focused on in the book. Um, single issue advocacy groups, the same network of people got together to uh, transform certain aspects of Australia's political and economic life. Uh, and they really achieved a lot in their time. And uh, what led you to this particular research area, the intersection of politics and economics? I mean, this started as my PhD, and I, I had sort of grand plans about doing a somewhat of an intellectual history of Australia and looking at the different currents of thought uh, since the Second World War. That was uh, quickly shot down by my supervisor, who said that's far too big, um, quite correctly. He thought that one way of approaching this sort of intellectual history was to focus on some groups that had that had plenty of attention in the media when they were active uh, but there was very little scholarly literature about them and in terms of economics I mean the neoliberal transformation since the since the 70s and 80s in Australia has, has been as significant as anywhere in the world um, the the sorts of ideas that these guys were promoting back then, 
are really dominant. Now, there's been a bit of a backlash in recent years against those ideas, but they were really dominant for a few decades. So it's a, it's an important way to look at politics through this economic lens. So you differentiated specifically in the book between the new right and the hard right. Yeah, the new right is a term that's, well, naturally it's become obsolete because the new right no longer were new after they were around for a while. But that was a term that was used quite a lot in the 70s and 80s for these neoliberals. Neoliberalism was not a term that was really used in Australia at the time. It was a, a group of people linked to the Liberal Party that were really quite active. They were young they were enthusiastic for new ideas. They were moving away from the Menzies Liberal Party of a sort of staid traditional conservatism. They wanted economic vigour. They wanted excitement. There's a there's a sort of almost radicalism about them. But they became more reactionary, more conservative. That's why I use the term hard right for what they have become. But the new right was certainly how they were defined in the 80s. And they drew a lot more influence from newer economic schools that were more hardline neoliberal. For example, they drew a lot on Milton Friedman's philosophies. That's right. And Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises. So these are the, the godfathers of the of neoliberalism. And Friedman and Hayek both came out to Australia in the mid seventies and spoke at, you know, IPA events, Centre for Indus independent studies events here in Sydney. They were the heroes that they were looking to. They were very excited by these ideas and it was a it was really a revolution within the economic sphere that we're still seeing the consequences of today. You said they go a little bit more into who they are. There were three main figures. Yeah, so Hugh Morgan was, uh, he's still around, but he's retired. He was an executive of Western Mining Corporation. He had an assistant called Ray Evans, probably the most significant figure in this book. Ray Evans was a culture warrior par excellence. He worked for Hugh Morgan at Western Mining and John Stone, the former Treasury Secretary and later a National Party Senator. They, among many others, but they were the key figures in these four groups that I was looking at the H.R. Nichols Society, the Samuel Griffith Society, the Benelong Society, the Lavoisier Group. They really, they, they felt think tanks, they had a research capacity, but they didn't have the same activist capacity that they could create on their own without any commitments to donors. They did exactly what they liked. This book is coming out at a very interesting time. It's election year. Yep. here in Australia. So I wanted to talk about the H.R. Nichols Society, which focuses on industrial relations. Yep. So do you be able to tell me how these have impacted on um, not just the political ideology of the right, but on our economics? Yes. Yeah, so the H.R. Nichols Society came into being, as I said, in the 80s when the Hawke Labor government was in power. So it was very difficult for them to influence government policy at that time. So they worked away on the Liberal opposition and tried to force moderates out and encourage hardline economic types to, to take those seats. And then by the time the Howard government came to power in 1996, there was a much more hardline Liberal Party and they then used their influence to try and actually change government policy. Uh, they had difficulty doing that when it came to 
Workplace Relations Act because they needed to get it through the Senate, but still the Howard government did deliver some of what they wanted. When it comes to the sort of economic basis, I mean, this is what became economic orthodoxy, that we needed to privatise, deregulate, open the economy up to foreign investment. All of these sorts of things were orthodoxy for essentially three decades. As I said, there's now been a bit of a backlash, but, you know, it's that saying from Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. So people on the left found it very difficult, even though they were adamantly opposed to this, to really oppose it in a in a significant way that changed policy. And also the language in which we talk about these different policies also keeps changing, doesn't That's it? That's right. Yeah, so I mean, we we used to talk about economic rationalism in Australia, a term that's again, become obsolete, but that was a way of really making it very difficult to oppose. Why would you be opposed to something so rational as economic rationalism? And back to these groups that we were talking about, what is the end goal, both politically and economically speaking? For the H.R. Nichols Society, they would like to see trade unions obliterated completely. They think that they only cause friction between employers and employees, so, and which then does further damage to the economy. So if employers and employees could negotiate free of any middlemen, uh, such as trade unions or the, the Fair Work Commission, then we would open the economy to more productivity, more success for everyone. When it comes to the Lavoisier group, they don't believe in climate science. So why would you spend money on climate science? So you can only do economic damage to, to the country by taking any action whatsoever on climate change, whether it's the weak action that we've seen from Liberal governments or the, the carbon tax from Labor and the Greens. All of it is damaging. The Benelong Society is a very significant group in that it tried to push Indigenous policy to a sort of mainstream economic view that unless Indigenous people join the mainstream economy... Uh, abandon their remote communities, give up on land rights, collective rights, then they're doomed. And that really is a pretty alarming view to take, but it's a view that was very popular within Liberal Party circles, especially in the Howard years, and it continues to influence their policies towards Indigenous people. So perhaps that's why we've seen so many cuts to Indigenous organisations and to uh, support programs. Yeah, it's a sort of laissez-faire view. If you can't support yourself economically, why should the government? Our welfare support systems as well. Absolutely. That was Dominic Kelly, author of Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics, ending that report. You're listening to On The Money Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Veronica Alashina. International research publication is an industry worth over $25 billion. Millions of dollars per year is spent by our government to fund research in universities and other research foundations, and often these are published in journals that are peer-reviewed. Articles increasingly are now held behind increasingly expensive paywalls, and this is clearly an impediment to research. Who is making all the money, and how is the business model changing? Professor Virginia Barber from the Queensland University of Technology is the advisor to the Office of Research Ethics and Integrity, and also the Australasian Open Access Strategy Group. And Michael Lester from Northern Beaches FM asked just what problems have arisen with the peer-reviewed research model in recent years. Uh, well, I mean, that's a great question, and it's, uh, there, I, I don't, I'll say there are two aspects to it. 
The first of which is that there is absolutely a problem with um, the flow of information. So if you are not sitting within a university like I do and you want to access an article on pretty much any topic within the academic literature, you, you, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, uh, and you know those costs can be pretty substantial on a per article basis. Um, and on occasion, they're completely out of your reach. So they range from you know, 20 or $30 maybe, but you know, if you're talking to getting a subscription to a very kind of niche journal, you, you know, the costs for those may not be available individually, and those, the articles may be only available for sort of thousands of dollars for a subscription. So there's a very substantial issue around cost. That in itself leads to real problems with um, the um, being able to build on that information. So if, even if you work in the university sector and your university doesn't subscribe to a journal, you won't be able, for example, to do cross-disciplinary research. So there's, there's a real, real barrier there um, in sharing information at its most fundamental level. But the opportunity is actually the way that the open access movement came about, which was because this isn't just about cost. It's the, the fact that the whole, well, as we know, the internet started more than 20 years ago, and that led to an explosion and a different model of sharing of information. And so the people who started off in the open access movement, and I, I've been working in it since, um, since 2003, so I've been doing it for quite some time, realized there was a real opportunity, which was we could say the best way of sharing information in the print world was by journals that you subscribed to, you physically distributed. But now we have the opportunity for the internet to make things available to everyone through a completely different model. So my interest, I suppose, is not so much around the let's challenge the financial aspect. It's actually what can we use, what, what can we do better given the technology that we have now. Yes, yeah, so it's a pretty uh, conventional case perhaps now of a digital disruption of a traditional business model, let's put it that way. And as you say, it presents an opportunity for those who might seek to take advantage of the new technologies. What were the sort of cost structures involved in the traditional publishing model and how... Uh, were they carried and how do they differ to the particular costs involved in the open access approach? Right, so traditionally the, 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 the scholarly publishing model um, is, as, as you can imagine, is primarily based around the outputs of researchers based at universities. And so traditionally what, what happens is that an academic will, will write an article they'll submit it to a subscription journal. Um, that journal will do peer review, which means sending it out to a few academics who have knowledge of it. It'll then be assessed by an editor or an editorial team, and then typeset and put into paper and distributed, physically distributed. And that's a subscription model that we'll all be very familiar with in many different ways. And traditionally, the costs for those subscriptions have been paid for by university libraries who manage very large budgets. And just as an example, the costs nowadays in Australia for, um, for subscriptions to academic journals is around 260 to $270 million per year. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of money. This is a massive, massive industry. And the problem that we have right now is that most of those subscription costs don't go to not-for-profit or university presses. They go to publishers that are for-profit. So pretty much in any field that you were to look at, there's, there are four or five publishers that dominate the landscape. They're not all the same four or five, but there is overlap. And so we have a system which is essentially is an oligopoly, which is that if you want to read a journal article, you can only go to the journal that publishes it. You can't go to another journal. So 
there's actually very little competition within the system. So that has allowed prices to increase. It's allowed publishers to really decide what they want to charge and to um, decide on the business model. If you talk to a lot of academics, they, they're often very surprised when you say to them, you do know that your university will be paying tens of millions of dollars for subscriptions. They'll be very surprised because to them, they just get to read stuff because it's uh, managed by the university. So what you have is a, a very expensive business where the people who are the primary consumers of it, the academics, have very little idea of the cost. And that's one issue that has led to uh, the situation we're in at the moment. So uh, to be clear about what you're saying, that traditional business model, on the first and most importantly, uh, takes the outputs from publicly funded research, say, in universities, so that we as taxpayers have paid for it, both in salaries for the researchers and in grants that are given out. Uh, it then goes into the hands of these uh, uh, journals and publishers in the oligopoly you've described internationally. The peer review process, too, I understand, not only do the authors not get paid, presumably, or editors of books, because presumably they're paid their salaries at universities, it might be argued, but the uh, the cost of peer review, which the journals rely on, the editorial boards, presumably the time and energy of all those academics is also not paid for directly. That's exactly right. In the vast majority of cases, academics do the work for free within their university time or actually you know, in their evenings or weekends, which is, which is increasing in the case. I believe that only late last year the European community with 12 countries signed off uh, on a mandatory system for open access, which seems like a, a pretty strong move forward. Uh, is that what's happening over there? Yes, the, the European um, Union has, has often been probably the most advanced in this in this particular area and uh, as you mentioned there is a there's a, a, a particular plan it's called plan s which uh, arose last year um, which is um, aiming to make all research funded by this group of funders uh, immediately open access um, on the t at the time of publication and they want that to happen by the 1st of january 2020 which is obviously not very long away at all it's provoked an enormous amount of international debate and um, I think the response to that will be very, very interesting and um, I, think we'll, I think we'll see some substantial changes this year. Professor Virginia Barber from Queensland University of Technology there speaking with Michael Lester from Northern Beaches FM. You're listening to On The Money Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Veronica Anshin. That's all we have time for on On The Money this week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to producer Daniel Ellison and executive producer Roderick Chambers. On The Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2SER for the Community Radio Network. You can find all our shows and stories at 2SER.com slash on the money. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. New episodes are coming out every week. And follow us on Twitter. Look for at OnTheMoney2SER. Find us also on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest updates. I'm Veronica Alashina. We will be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company. <laughs>